Hello, and welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. So, um, so I guess uh, my first question, Ian Finley, the uh, playwright uh, of 1960, is um, Ian, you had... Uh, been writing plays since you were very young, uh, and uh, 1960 was not your first produced play, but I think it was your first uh, fully produced play in Raleigh. Is that uh, is that correct? Yes, and we had done uh, small pieces like the vignettes in Oakwood and that sort of thing, but in terms of a, a full production, uh, it was very much the first one here in Raleigh. Yeah, and um, what is the process? Uh, this is kind of a broad uh, question, but when you're given a, a, a challenge of writing something on, on a theme as big as the theme of 1960, which essentially is the, in some ways, the history of America, but certainly the history of the civil rights era, how do you deal with that? How do you clear a way um, uh, to figure out what the play is about uh, and, and that sort of thing? So, so you know this, this fully well, but um, I'm a structuralist. I believe in dramatic structure. I literally have it tattooed on my arm. So this is Aristotle's uh, dramatic structure and it's you know, stasis, inciting, incident, rising action. It's yeah. the journey of the protagonist um, because that's what Aristotle figured out is what's going to keep the audience interested. Audiences lose their attention very, very quickly. Um, and this structure is what, rivets them um and so but the thing is real life does not fit into this structure um so the trick is always to start with that and then to say okay what are the pieces of reality that can be fit into this structure you know what slice of this person's life can we we find that does mirror this. Mm-hmm. Um, and with something like 1960, the, the, the bigger issue um, was this is the journey of the protagonist, right? Um, the protagonist wants something, they try to get it, the climax, they get it or they don't. Um, but the, the story of the integration of Raleigh schools is bigger than one person. Sure, uh, I was about to say, what, who is the protagonist? How do you figure out who the protagonist is? Yes, so... For this one, and, and we, we struggled with this this a lot there because there are sort of uh, nominally there are two protagonists, uh, the Holt family, um, um, and the Campbells, and the Campbell family. I'm sorry, it was, it was right there on the tip of my tongue. Um, so what we eventually did was we went uh, to a uh, a trick that Clifford Odets used in his plays, which is the idea of the corporate protagonist, that it's not one person striving up this. It is a community striving up this. And every person within that community is part of the protagonist. So the protagonist in this is the African-American community of Raleigh. Um, and their goal is the uh, integration of, mm-hmm. of schools. Uh, and once we sort of had found that, then that gave us a lens that we could then try to put all of these, these uh, moments of life, these little uh, you know, vignettes of experience into some sort of an arc that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. Is, um, is the, um, you know, I was thinking, as you talked about that, I started thinking about uh, Robert Altman's uh, MASH, you know, the film version yeah. of MASH is another example of that. There really isn't a particular protagonist. It's kind of just the idea of, are we going to get through this or not? You know? Yeah. 
so that's very interesting. It's it's used more often uh, uh, these days, I imagine, than uh, than it was um, uh, back in Odette's time. He was mm-hmm. he was probably uh, he he absolutely pioneered it, and it makes sense, right? Odette's you know big socialist that sort of thing. Uh, Aristotle says this is about one person changing the world, and Odette's was like one person doesn't change the world; a community, collective action, yeah. changes the world. And so he came up with a dramatic structure that demonstrated collective action sometimes it's a small group but it, it, it typically is a, that's right um so so when you started looking into 1960 you discovered these two both uh, very dynamic families both working toward the same end i think and uh what was the research like uh, on, on how did you get to know those two families uh, it was was enormous. So we uh, began visiting the Pope House, and that was where they sort of gave us the the sense of you know, there are these two sort of uh, pillars of this story. Um, and then we did lots of interviews, but the the breakthrough really came with a visit to the Raleigh City Museum um, because they have taught this as part of their education program, and they loaded me down. I, I left there with two grocery shopping bags full of primary source documentation and interviews that they had done, which then led us on to people that we needed to interview. And of course, the key interview was uh, with uh, Joe Holt himself. And we sat down in a library there on the campus of Shaw. um, And it was a good two, three hour interview Mm -hmm. um, that was just, uh, you know, whenever you have a first person, uh, experience. That's that's the best primary source there is because you get a sense of the character's voice yeah. um, as well. Um, because we, we had had a fair amount of documentation about the Campbells. Um, you know, there's the ones whose pictures are in the newspaper and all that because they they sort of cut the tape there at the at the finish line. Um, so we had that going in, but to have the chance to talk to to Joe, um, and then to have all of this research. Um, so we ended up with these massive binders. You know, a house with them um, full of the documentation and then began the very, very long process of, okay, what moments of this fit into this structure? And as uh, you remember, one of the um, things we kept running into is this idea of where do we begin? That became one of the guiding questions of the piece because every time we thought, well, this is this story. Oh, wait, but this thing happened first. Oh, well, but this thing happened there. Oh, what this thing happened there. And you couldn't really get the weight of this story until you had gone really back to uh, the founding of Raleigh to, uh, to some degree. Yeah. Um, if not the founding of the country. It's, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, sure. And we had done um, 1776, not, uh, not too long before that. And, uh, uh, in which you appeared, uh, yeah, and uh, and I remember the um, it wasn't your scene, but the scene about uh, molasses to rum to slap. yeah, Rutledge, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, that's a uh, part of the story that uh, that the historians like to leave out a bit, and I really respect uh, the writers of that play for 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 putting that in. When you um, when you're doing all that research and you're collecting all that stories, I, I'm fairly certain that you you find more stuff than you feel like ultimately can use is it hard to let go does it feel like you're letting go of a child or something like that it's not so so my one of my biggest problems as a writer is that i'm clever not smart 
Uh, smart means you use your intelligence to get out of trouble. Clever means you use your intelligence to get into trouble, right? And I tend to be clever, not smart. Um, and so I had all these clever ideas like, oh, this moment is, is fascinating. I can do this clever, interesting thing with it. Um, and then, again, going back to structure, there comes a point where you realize the structure, which is what's going to interest the audience, means you hang on to this and you get rid of that, no matter how clever that thing is. Um, and there, so there were, there were lots of things. One of the things I held on to for a long time um, was the the narrator character of it that just we, we gave her the, the Brechtian title of the teacher she's this sort of this universal educator yeah. um, I had wanted her for a long time to be uh, Anna Haywood uh, who was the first African American educator um, to go to the Sorbonne and all that sort of thing she was from Raleigh you know daughter of slaves and is tangentially related to the Holt family. And so for the first few drafts, because it was so clever, right? And it was such an interesting parallel. And it was such a, a rich metaphor. So the first few drafts I had her in there, it was just, it got so convoluted and confused. It's like, who is this person? How are they connected? Um, and so it's like, eventually it had to go. And once it was gone, it was clear that that was the right choice. But, you know, uh, because it was so clever and so rich, and you can get away with it in a novel, right? Because the audience has time to pick through these layers of meaning and, and metaphor, but you can't really get to get away with that sort of cleverness in a play. You have to, you have to use your clever moments very, very sparingly because you got maybe five of them. Yeah. I'm thinking of, uh, again, of uh, Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men and in that book where he jumps back in time, one, one whole chapter just jumps like a hundred years earlier or something like that uh, to deal with a whole different set of characters who are related to the, the characters. But uh, when we did that uh, uh, stage adaptation of that, Adrian Hull uh, wanted to do both parts. And so he made them two separate plays. And you saw the first one, which was the earlier story. And then you flashed forward to the, the, the Willie Stark story, you know, the one that everybody knows. And I think it really added uh, leavening to it. Uh, I was going to ask you about the, the concept of um, uh, the protagonist, you know, which is um, an idea that, uh, that goes back as, as far as Western drama is concerned. Um, there is another um, element there um, that I think, artists maybe don't talk about very much, and that is the political aspect of, of deciding who a protagonist is. And when you're dealing with a story like um, the civil rights movement or, uh, you know, really anything that where, where uh, upheaval is concerned, as some people feel one way, some people feel another, the, the presumption um, of the writer is that um, they have a right to to do that, um, and and is that uh, how do you how do you reconcile that as an artist? Uh, um? So again, go, I I go back to structure for my defense on this, mm -hmm. um, and that is when we think of protagonists and antagonists, we're not really thinking about white hats and black hats. Good and bad, uh, yeah. Good and bad, exactly. Yeah. Uh, protagonist is from the Greek proto, meaning start, and 
agon, meaning conflict. So you have the proto-agonist, uh, the one who starts the conflict, which can easily be, and, and therefore the person who is, who is really the, the striving force, right? The force that's, that's going to be willing to encounter obstacles and use tactics to overcome those obstacles over the course of the drama. And that can be the bad guy. If we think of Othello, right? Othello himself is a completely reactionary character. Yeah. The driving force, technically the protagonist, is Iago, who always has these plates spinning and all these different things going on and drives forward the action. Even, uh, uh, even Hamlet uh, really is, is looking out for revenge, you know, which yeah. is not exactly a noble pursuit. Not, so. a, not at all, and, and as yeah. so often the case. Uh, <laughs> if we think of fences, for example, you know, Troy is the main character, doesn't do much, and, you know, spoiler alert, he's dead the last 20 minutes of the play. Yeah. It's Rose who's the, who's the protagonist in that technical term of the, the engine, the person who wants something so bad that they're just going to keep pushing, and that push creates the agon, which creates the driving force of, of the play. So the one with the most lines is not necessarily... No, I mean, they're, they're the main character, but main character and protagonist and are not the same, and even more so main character and hero and protagonist, three different sorts of, of categories. So uh, we're, we're a little off, off of 1960, but I, wanna, but, I, but I love this discussion. And so I just want to ask you uh, one more question about that then. Um, the... Um, the Aristotelian uh, structure that you have tattooed on your arm so helpfully uh, is um, something that I think in some um, schools of thought has fallen into disfavor uh, somewhat. Uh, I'm just curious what you feel about that. I, I know that I, I can't think of a great play that doesn't, uh, or, or story at all. I mean, it doesn't have to be a play. It could be a film or a book or anything, but, but I think most of the, uh, um, most of the great ones, uh, more or less follow that. Is that something that, that we have been trained to, to look at or, uh, I think I, I, this is a fabulous question and I love that you've asked it. Um, I think it's the opposite. So uh, Aristotle did not invent this any more that, than he invented um, the natural sciences, right? He observed the, the, the world and distilled from that certain observations about the world that he put into his scientific writings. Right. Same thing with drama. He observed, he watched hundreds of plays at the, at the Festival of, of um, Dionysus. And he said, this is interesting and this is crap. What is it about this that makes this interesting yeah. and this crap? Well, yeah. in this one, there's a character who wants something and tries to get it, and there's a moment where their actions, not some other actions, not some deus ex machina, resolves that, and that keeps the audience's interest. So he didn't invent it. And I think when we talk uh, Aristotelian structure, we think, you know, old, dead, white guys in, in Greece, right? And why should we hold to something that they invented? But what he was doing was he was just observing, this is what keeps the audience's interest. Right. Um, so I would say that this structure, you can have a piece that ignores the structure, but you do it so at a terrible risk of losing the audience's interest. All that this structure does is sort of guarantee that the audience is going to be interested because what it does is it raises the central question of drama. Will the, this person get what they want? We are hardwired to follow that. So if you have this structure, you can keep someone engaged the whole time. Now, maybe you want to do some other uh, type of storytelling um, you want to do something that's more dreamlike and, and imagistic. Um, 
what was the dark side of the moon piece? Uh, dark that, side, yeah. Dark side, yes. Uh, same sort of thing. Uh, there, there is a nominal protagonist there, but it's really a series of images. Einstein's dreams is another great example of this, where there are these series of images, and from that we distill a meaning. But notice those plays are short. They're usually only about an hour, yeah. maybe 90 minutes at the max, because without this structure, we will only stay engaged for so long. So you can, you can use different tools to keep the audience interested, um, but Aristotelian structure is a way to keep them engaged and attached for a significant period of time, what Aristotle referred to as the magnitude of the piece. And he just meant length, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to keep the audience's attention for two or three hours, you need this structure to do it. If all you're trying to do is uh, cause some other interesting analysis of ideas or images, and you don't mean to keep them for a play of that magnitude, if you're just going for an hour or 30 minutes or 15 minutes, yeah. then you can use the different structures uh, that don't have that. But I would suggest that having that underneath is always going to strengthen the, the substructure of your play. Does it, wed, uh, does it wed the audience to the character? Does it put them in, in the shoes of the character? <clears throat> It can, um, because we're, we find ourselves rooting for them. I mean, again, you watch Othello, you kind of want Iago to win, right? He's, he was worked so hard. He's, he's put all these plans in place. You would feel, uh, maybe not that you want him to win, but you want to see these plans to come to fruition um, in some way. Richard III, even more so, right? He's a, he's a nasty, nasty guy. And yet by the end there, it's like, oh, can he kill one more person? We want him to win the battle there. We want someone to give him a horse. That's, that's very strange, isn't it? It is strange, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of that in uh, art these days too, yeah. Uh, the anti-hero, I guess. Yeah. Um, so back to 1960, um, and just to wrap up, uh, so uh, can you talk just a little bit about the experience? Uh, that, that play was very well received. Um, uh, you know, can you talk about the experience of, of writing a play, you know, uh, doing research on your own and sitting in your room in your hovel or whatever, you know, yeah. uh, in a Bob Cratchit-like existence, and then uh, suddenly being in a room full of people that are... Um, hollering and cheering, you know, for this, uh, this work of art that you've created. So it's like, I think the a really amazing thing is less the, uh, the audience response to that, uh, unless you've written a comedy, right? Cause then you, you, you know, if something works, if it gets the laugh or not, yeah. what's really the magical, the profoundly magical thing about this is that you're alone in a room, as you say, uh, and you have these ideas in your head, and maybe they're very clear, and they're very well formed, and then, but they're in your head, right? And then you give the script to a director and a bunch of actors, mm -hmm. and they create something that is what you had in your head and is more than what you had in your head. Because you can't, as a writer, imagine all the, the subtle differences in, in things like the costumes will bring, or, or a directorial choice, or even the tone of voice of an actor. So you've gone from something in your head to something more than that, except it's real. It's not in your head anymore. It's not a dream or a drawing. You could go up and touch it, right? Now, the actors wouldn't want you to it would bother them, right? But, but, it, yes. but it exists in the real world. And there is a very small slice yeah. of human endeavor where you can go from an idea in your head to something that tangibly exists in the real world. And then, as you say, that is then shared with a, a, an audience of people as well. That 
that you not only have imagined something and made real that thing, but now that reality has entered into the minds of others. There's a very small fraction of experience that I can think where that that journey takes place. And that's it's thrilling. And it's the reason why I write. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's terrific. And 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 certainly um 1960 was, uh, as I said, was well received, uh, and, and I think your work on it was very well received. And the, uh, but the impact of it, uh, I think, was was uh, extraordinary too. Uh, I still yeah. people tell there's, me that there's a specific, I think, instance of that. That I think does bear bear repeating. It's mm-hmm. my favorite story about this. Is you know, I interviewed Joe Holt, and then his mother, Alwina uh, Holt, is what the maybe the central character really um certainly in the first act and really into the second act as well because she's she is the most active protagonist like character through that large section um and i had written her based on the interviews that i had with him and based on these notes um and the climactic scene of the first act which is the the very true to life uh um uh interaction she had the conversation she had behind closed doors with the the superintendent of schools in Raleigh. Um, we presented it at the Museum of History uh, before we opened uh, the show. And Joe Holt was, was in the audience for that. It was terrifying. You, you never, in all the jobs you have, never write somebody's mother. Because you know you, you, you can't win that fight, right? Um, except at the end of it, uh, he came up to me, tears in his eyes, and, and just thanked me for writing her and for bringing her back in that way. Um, and that, I think, was the, the, the great triumph of that, to be able to give voice um, to this astonishing person um, and to be told that that voice was authentic. I, I had a, a, a moment uh, with the play, too, um, you know, I directed the production for those listening who don't know that. Um, and um, there was a moment where somebody uh, talked to me about when when the uh, narrator character would, near the very end of the play, would, would literally point to the floor and, and say it was right here, right in this room, that this uh, historic event that the play has been leading up to took place. And and more than one person actually told me that that sense of, you know, when we see plays, we suspend disbelief, you know, as this uh, phrase goes, and we believe that we're in the Roman Colosseum or, you know, uh, yeah. wherever, uh, uh, Ford's Theater. Uh, but, uh, but, but in this case, we, did, we realized at that moment that we didn't have to suspend disbelief, that we actually were in that room. And yes. that, uh, that was kind of a fun uh, thing that you added into the to the play too that made it uh, kind of brought home to the audience not only is this a fanciful idea but it's something that actually happened and it happened in this room Uh, so uh, i thought that was a very neat um, and and thoughtful way of uh, driving that home as well yeah well ian thank you for doing it thank you for for writing the play um thank you for allowing us to to read uh show it you know uh, for a week uh, during the pandemic uh, uh, i think it's a great uh, a great piece of theater uh, for people to see right now you know because it talks about insurmountable hills and, and, the yes. and so so i think well done and uh, uh, you know we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll talk with you down the road and uh, 
maybe talk about reviving the play as, a, as an actual production soon. Great fun. Excellent. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for having me uh, on. I look forward to, to seeing that on this, the small screen coming uh, fairly shortly. Thank you, Ian. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Join us tonight at 7 p.m. for the premiere streaming of 1960 by Ian Finley, available at twitch.tv slash burning coal theater. 1960 will be available on Twitch through April 16th, so don't miss out on this iconic piece of burning coal and Raleigh history.